Well, good morning, everybody. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today on uh, Palm Sunday. And whether you're a regular attender here, your friend dragged you through the door. Uh, either way, we're happy you chose to worship with us here at Parkview. And today, millions of people around the world are gathering to celebrate Palm Sunday, uh, kicking off Holy Week as we lead up to Easter uh, a week from today. And as we talk about this idea of Palm Sunday, there's going to be a, a reoccurring theme that comes up as we talk through the story. And it's a theme that you may know about in your personal life. And it's this idea of unmet expectations. Now, I can tell you I have, I have faced unmet expectations in my own life, even in my, in my marriage. Uh, a year ago, uh, my wife and I celebrated our first Valentine's Day together. And it, what you need to know about my... Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> What you need to know about my wife, Paige, is she is uh, the most creative person I know. She likes to create things and make someone's vision come to life. Uh, and she is incredible at that. So on this Valentine's Day, uh, my wife, in uh, no uncertain terms, made it clear she wanted me to create something for her. And if you know me, you know I am not very good at that. So, uh, so I did what any guy would do. I, I I opened my iPad, I went to the Pinterest app, and, and yes, I have a Pinterest account, don't judge me, all right? And I started scrolling through the Pinterest apps, and I typed in like the most hopeless stuff too. I was typing in husband, gift, for wife on Valentine's Day. These were the kind of searches that were going on. And so I started going through, um, I started going through and scrolling through and finding, and then it showed up. I found it. Because for some unfathomable reason that day, when I saw the title of the craft, Bacon Bouquet, <laughs> I thought, we got a winner. And in case you don't know how to make a bacon bouquet, let me tell you, all right? That you make a bacon bouquet by going to Target, you buy a fake plant, okay, and then you get bacon and toothpicks, and you roll up the bacon, you stick toothpicks in it, you cook them, and then you replace the inside of the flour with the bacon, so bacon bouquet. And I thought that was funny, right? Like you give a bouquet of roses, so like bouquet of bacon, funny, right? No? <laughs> okay. So I decided I'm going to do it. And so I went to Target, I grabbed all the supplies, and uh, here's what came out. That is my bacon bouquet. Let me tell you what's going through your head right now. You see, you heard bacon bouquet and you thought, that's a bad idea. Then you saw the picture and you thought, I, you underwhelmed me even more than I could have imagined with a bacon bouquet. It's not even a bouquet. I don't know what happened there. So anyways, uh, Paige comes home, and I, I give her the bouquet of bacon, and I say, <laughs> there's two people in the front here just getting a kick out of this. Um, <laughs> I give her the bacon bouquet, and I say, happy Valentine's Day, babe. And what you need to know is my wife is so compassionate. She's so compassionate, which is what made the next awkward pause so devastating. She didn't respond. She just kind of stared at the thing for a while. And then she finally spoke up. And with, like, a combination of, like, disdain and disgust in our face, she, she said, what is it? <laughs> As Paige retells that story, that's not the worst part. The worst part of the story when she retells that to her friends is that she doesn't even like bacon. 
As you can imagine, my wife's expectations of Valentine's Day went unmet that day. And we all have expectations for our days, and, and they go unmet on a daily basis. And that's where our story starts today. They go on the unmet expectations of the people who encountered Jesus. But we'll also talk about how Jesus actually exceeded their expectations and ours in ways we could have never imagined. So let me pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I pray as, as we open your word this morning that you would let our defenses down. That whatever expectations of you we walked into this building with and whatever, whatever disappointments we faced in the past few days, the past few weeks, months, and maybe even years, I pray that you would penetrate through those this morning and speak directly into our hearts and our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is referred to in most circles as Palm Sunday, and this is in reference to the week prior to Easter that commemorates uh, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and his uh, death and subsequent resurrection on the cross. And we call it Palm Sunday because in the Gospels it records that uh, people had, had brought palm branches as he entered Jerusalem. This week was particularly unique in that Jesus was entering Jerusalem during the Passover week. And the Passover was a time every year where the Israelite people would celebrate and remember what God did for them hundreds of years prior when he, uh, when he saved them from slavery in Egypt. Now I'm going to be reading uh, the Palm Sunday narrative from Matthew 21, 1 through 11. I want to invite you to read along on your mobile devices or there's Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you. And I also want to let you know, if you don't own a Bible... We want to welcome you to take one of ours. And yes, I just told you it is okay to steal a Bible from church. Um, if you don't own one, it would be our privilege for you to take one of ours. So uh, let's start in Matthew 21. Uh, we'll start at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. See, you, you kind of want to think about Jesus entering to Jerusalem a lot like a perfect storm. That's really the most appropriate picture I can give you uh, to unpack the, the social, political, and religious backdrop that was going on at the time of the first century. We're going to look at how this storm was forming from the perspective and expectations of three different parties. And the first one I want to unpack is the expectations of Jesus by the Romans. See, at this point in the first century, Rome is the new superpower. And they're just getting done transitioning tumultuously, I might add, uh, from being a republic to being ruled by an emperorship. Octavian, the son of Julius Caesar, had taken the title of Augustus, meaning majestic or worthy of honor. 
And the good news that this emperor wanted to tell the rest of the world was that the Son of God had arrived. He was ruling. And after Octavian's death, his successor Tiberius was also divinized, and he took on all the same titles. So it must have raised some eyebrows in the Roman leadership when the Israelites suddenly started claiming that their king had come when Jesus entered Jerusalem that day. But the Roman leadership likely didn't see Jesus as someone who was actually going to take over as emperor, but more as an outlaw who had the opportunity to stir up uh, their most sensitive population, which was the Israelites. See, Israel was given plenty of perks in that, uh, in that society because of their historical significance and their influence. But as a relatively new leadership was establishing control, if someone were to even hint at starting a revolt in Rome, the Romans knew exactly how to deal with that kind of person. They killed them. And so we have Rome, whose expectations of Jesus were never that he would be a real king, he proclaimed to be, and we're going to find out later that they set their expectations dangerously low. The other party I want to talk about is the nation of Israel. See, at this point in the first century, the Israelites are under Roman subjugation. And in the few hundred years prior to Jesus' arrival, due to war and oppression, Israel had been without a king. Their physical kingdoms had been demolished. Their temples were destroyed. And even the temple they rebuilt in Jerusalem was only a glimpse of its former glory. But despite their stormy past, they believed wholeheartedly that their future was bright. They believed this because in, in 2 Samuel 7, hundreds of years prior, God had given a prophecy to a man named Nathan. And, Nathan, and he had promised Nathan that a king was going to arise from the line of their most famous king, King David. And so... God also promised that he was going to establish the throne of that king forever. But it doesn't stop there. There were more prophecies, not just that a king was coming, but there were prophecies about how this king was going to come. Like the one in Zechariah 9.9 that was quoted in the middle of that Matthew 21 passage I read moments ago, which reads, See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when Jesus came riding on a donkey... In the exact way that the prophets had predicted, people were throwing palm branches down in the ground and shouting, Hosanna. And they were thinking, finally, our king has come. They looked at Jesus, the Israelites, as the new King David. That he would take the physical throne, he would supplant Rome, and the Israelites would rise again as the most prominent people group in the world. They viewed their freedom primarily as a political freedom. Freedom from their Roman oppressors. And after years of waiting, their moment had come. But what they didn't realize was that the king they had hoped would come and live was actually the king who was going to come and die. They set some lofty expectations for Jesus. As we'll find out, even their expectations weren't high enough for what God had intended for his king. And that brings us to the last expectation that we honestly kind of tend to forget. And that's God's expectations for his son, for King Jesus. What did God expect Jesus to do when he entered Jerusalem Palm Sunday? 
But to be clear, the entire idea of even having a, a physical king for the nation of Israel, that was never really in the cards. You see, years ago, Israel asked God for a king because they were jealous of the hierarchical structures of the surrounding nations. So in 1 Samuel 8, God gave Israel a, a king at their request, even though that's not what he intended. See, he wanted them to know that he was enough. They didn't have to have a king. He wanted to be their king. And so, despite that, Israel still demanded that they have their own king in an act of rebellion, insecurity, and jealousy. And so, God relented. And over the course of history, they had some good kings, and they had a lot, a lot of bad ones. And so on Palm Sunday, Israel was waiting for their king to arise again. But throughout the Old Testament, the prophets had warned that when this king, when this king comes, he's, one, going to come on God's timing, and two, he's going to come the way that God wants him to come. But the people of Israel, they couldn't hear that, or they maybe rather didn't want to hear that. You see, God did not send his son to, to earth to merely save an oppressed people group in a small span of history. God had a much bigger plan in mind for Jesus. The Apostle Paul explains this in Colossians 1 when he talks about God's expectations for Jesus and what he would accomplish when he writes this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to, and catch this word, reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has, and here's this word again, reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. See, the root word of reconcile that showed up a couple times there is to change. And if you look at its most common usage in the New Testament... It's always referring to this idea of bringing together two or more parties that have disharmony between them. And in Romans 8, we find out that all of creation, that includes us, all of creation is at disharmony with God. And so it is through King Jesus that God would reconcile the entire world to himself. Let me say that again. It is through King Jesus God would reconcile the entire world to himself. That was Jesus' purpose. In other words, God expected Jesus to be a king that would do what was necessary to restore our relationship with him. And that restoration has nothing to do with your family of origin, has nothing to do with your color, your race, your socioeconomic status. We all have access to it. The poor and the marginalized, the rich and wealthy, and everyone in between. That's what God expected out of Jesus. That's what he expected out of his son, when he came riding in on a donkey in what we now call Palm Sunday. Let me ask you a question. Do you, do you sense the tension in that story? Do you, do you sense the tension amongst these different groups that's happening? How could, how could the expectations on one man differ so violently amongst these different parties? I mean, look at the, the, the Romans. They didn't think enough of Jesus. Then you look at the Israelites, and they looked at Jesus primarily to come and, and fulfill the ambitions and hopes they had, kind of their selfish desires. 
And when Jesus didn't meet any of their expectations, he was hung on a cross a few days later to die. And we all have to ask the same question that those groups were faced with, and it's this. What do we do when the reality of who Jesus is doesn't match up to who we expect him to be or what we expect him to do? Sit in, the, sit in the tension of that question for a second. What do we do with that? Author and professor William Lane Craig speaks candidly about how we deal with our unmet expectations of God when he writes this. When God doesn't live up to our expectations, then we jettison God and we do things the way we think they should be done, or we resent him for not giving us what we want. Jesus is under no obligation to live up to your expectations. We must tailor our expectations to what God decrees and not try to tailor God to fit our expectations. Oof. Much easier said than done, huh? Do you resonate with that at all? What story are you telling yourself right now? Think about it. Do you, when, you, when you hear that idea that you have expectations for God and then they go unmet, what story is rewinding through your head of when that's happened to you? Do you have a story like that? I know I do. I can remember uh, a number of years ago, I was, I was working in an organization. It was a place I loved. It was a place I had poured my heart into, and I believed wholeheartedly that God had not only called me to be there, but that he had called me to be there for the long term. That I was going to be there for a long time and invest in that city and those people. I developed some deep deep friendships, and I was committed to this place. But I also was recognizing um, that as I was there for the better part of a decade, I was wanting to expand. I wanted a, a greater sphere of influence. I felt like God was expanding my abilities and my gifts to use them more for his kingdom. And so I began opening a dialogue with my supervisor about this. And one day he, he called me into his office, and he had me sit across from him, across from him and he said, Josh, I'm going to make you a deal. We're going to give you a year. And in this year, if you do well, if you meet our expectations, everything goes right, we're going to keep you on. We're going to promote you. We're going to give you opportunities. We're going to expand your sphere of influence. We're going to give you the things that we think you're equipped to do. But if in a year we talk again and we don't think it's worked out, you're going to be stuck exactly at the spot that you're at. There will be no opportunity for growth or movement. And we may ask you to resign. Took me a few moments, and I extended my right hand across the table, and I said, deal. And I took that deal for a lot of reasons, but one that I would have never admitted at the time, I'll tell you right now, and it's this. It was this deep-seated belief that if I gave everything I had to something, if I worked my hardest, if I poured out all of me into this job, I believed that God was going to honor that. I believed that Jesus was going to give me everything I wanted in my family, in my vocation, because how could he not? I was giving everything. And so that year, uh, my team worked hard, and I poured into my team. And we made some hard changes. And we put on events that reached thousands of people in our community. We equipped an entire new generation of leaders and my off days became less and less as I continued to work and to work to try to, to make this happen. And I, 
I'll be honest with you. I, as we got most of the way through the year, I thought, there's just, I, I never really thought that this wasn't going to work out. Then one day, I got called in my supervisor's office. Some of you have had this moment in your lives. Where I got called in, and he asked me to take a seat, and he, and he hopped into the seat in front of me, and he abruptly started the conversation. He said, Josh, you're not the guy. You're not the guy. There were more things said. I don't remember a lot of them. So I shook his hand and I walked out and I, I went back to work, but I was just going through the motions. And many of you know that feeling, right, when something goes on in your life and you're at work and you're just going through the motions. Because my head was still spinning from a reality that just had not set in yet. My wife, Paige, who at the time I was only a few short weeks from proposing to, she came in and uh, she came to my office. She knew I'd had this conversation, so she wanted to ask how it went. So, so Paige walked in and she said, how'd it go? And I'll be honest with you, I, as soon as she asked that question, I just cried. I just cried. Because we knew what this meant. We knew that God was not calling us to stay here. We had to go. And we knew that to be married meant we were going to leave our home, we were going to leave our friends, our family, our community, all the things that we had found some deep-seated security in, we were going to have to give up to figure out whatever God was doing in, in my life, which at the time, I will tell you, I had no clue. See, I never expected that God would allow me to pour so much into something, to love people in a place so deeply and then pull the rug out from under me. I did not expect that. And that day, my expectations of God went unmet. And I was mad. I was really mad. See, I faced a difficult decision at that point. Do I surrender my hopes and dreams for whatever new dreams God had on the other side of the curtain that I just, I didn't know at the time? Or do I live in the anger and the bitterness that God had, had let me down and just do this life thing my way? See, my story is still being written, but what I didn't know is that God had something really good ready for my wife and I, and Parkview was part of that story. But in that moment, we couldn't see it. You see, that dream for where God was sending us was not even in my mind yet. Because all Paige and I could see was the pieces of our shattered dreams lying on the ground. You likely have some unmet expectations in your life. You may be expected like me if you work hard enough, if, if, you, if you're a good person, if you, if you do your best, that Jesus would give you a good job, a healthy marriage, would get you through school, would give you good health. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're disappointed. You're let down because some of the things you expected from God just have not come to fruition. And if that's you, I, I want you to consider two things. The first is this. Your story is still being written. Your story is still being written written. God is not done with you yet. God is not done with you yet. 
The second, I want to invite you to surrender whatever perfectly laid plans you had for your life to whatever God's plan is. And it's not just because of the results. It's because I just think it's way better to submit our plans to the plans of a perfect, loving creator than it is to follow my hopes and ambitions that are often misguided, and in my case, short-sighted. See, when Jesus entered Jerusalem that day on Palm Sunday, he purposely inserted himself in the height of a socio-political storm. He came with all the power and prestige to start a revolution that you might expect from the Son of God. But instead, he willingly set the stage for his death on the cross so that God's kingdom would be available to all of us. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we recalibrate our expectations to what Jesus wants as opposed to just fitting him into our, our little box. And I think that comes down to one simple truth. As a matter of fact, I think it comes down to one simple word. Surrender. Surrender. See, I had to surrender my perfectly laid out plans for my life, for my family, my vocation, to whatever God was going to do with me. What do you need to surrender? Maybe you need to surrender your expectations of what Jesus should have done in your life. Maybe you need to surrender your expectations that Jesus is only here to meet your hopes and ambitions. Maybe you have to surrender fear. Maybe you have to surrender fear that Jesus is going to ask you to do too much. Or surrender the fear that Jesus wants nothing to do with you. And maybe you have to surrender your baggage or the pain that has created walls between you and God. But most of all, we have to surrender all of ourselves. Because the reign of King Jesus is not about him fulfilling whatever ambitions we have for ourselves. But it's about his rule in our hearts and in our lives. This morning, um, as, our, as our band comes back up and our prayer counselors come down, I, I want to invite you to an opportunity. We're going to create some space here in the next couple songs for you to have that opportunity to just surrender. I want to invite you to surrender a couple things. One, as you've been sitting here listening, if there's something in your life that you're like, I need to give this to God, whatever it is, now is the time to do some business with God. I want to invite you to something else. I want to invite you, not for the next year, not for the next six months, not for the next month, but for the next week, to surrender. Does a surrender to what God could be doing this holy week in your life. To what God might want from you and in your life as we lead up to Easter. And as you do that, I want to I also invite you that there is space for you to have this moment with God. You can sit, you can stand, you can head to the, to the sides. We're going to have prayer counselors down on, on each side, and you're welcome to, to go to them and just ask for prayer. And we also have space at the foot of our stage if you just want to come down and meet Jesus there. But most of all, I, I implore you to not miss this moment. Don't miss this moment to surrender to God.
I don't know where you sit this morning, but there isn't a person in this room that doesn't have something, some unmet expectation, some failure, some, some something that you cannot surrender. Surrender is a big deal. It isn't something that we do naturally or we do well. In fact, it's something that we often push against. And so in this moment, I heard prayers throughout this room. And I want you to know that over the course of today and the rest of this week, leading up into Easter weekend, that we are going to be praying. We're going to be praying with you. We're going to be praying for you. We are going to be praying for our church, you. That as we walk into this holy week, we would not miss these moments to surrender. It is in that posture of surrender that God does the transforming. Will you stand as we close this morning? Father, you are good to us. Your spirit is faithful. And when we surrender, you open up your arms and you receive those things that we surrender to you. Father, forgive us for the expectations that we have placed upon you that are not yours. Enable us to see our daily path the way you would see it, that our ways would be your ways and not the other way around. Use the challenge that Josh has placed in our lives today throughout this week to mold us into the people that you would want us to be. Let no, no stone go unturned in our hearts and our minds that we would be a people that love you enough to surrender our own agendas, our own definitions, our own paths to you. And God, we promise at the end of the day, we'll give you all the glory and the praise because we do none of this without you. We do none of this. We can only do these things through you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, I want to encourage you to come back next, next weekend. It's going to be a huge weekend. And I want to challenge you. Invite somebody. Bring somebody with you. Buy them lunch on the way out. Okay? All right, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.